Good morning. I'm reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 13, uh, verses 24 through to 37. I'm reading in the New International Version, but if you have a red Bible in front of you, a church Bible, you'll find it on page 1019. 1019. But in those days, following that distress, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of the heavens. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near, right at the door. Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, it's the first week of Advent, that season in the church calendar where we look forward and prepare ourselves for the celebration of the birth of Christ. And you'd be forgiven for expecting that in this first week we would sort of do a run-up to the birth of Jesus by looking at a a passage of scripture that would prepare us for his birth, perhaps the story of the angel's visit to Mary, uh, telling her that she would conceive Jesus in her womb uh, miraculously by the Holy Spirit. But instead, we have here a passage where we're essentially coming midway in the middle of a conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples. It's a conversation that started off in the temple Uh, And Jesus has predicted that the temple would be destroyed. And as they move to the Mount of Olives, we tune in to hear him start with a reference to this time of trauma, a distress. And as if that's not enough, 
he goes on to talk about the end of the world. The sun will turn as black as ink, so black, in fact, that the moon will have nothing to reflect. And the stars themselves will melt like milk drops from their canvas, the sky. And as if the planets are taken by the shoulders, they're shaken and given a sharp jolt. Now, this temple destruction and this cosmos collapse, it hardly seems relevant to the good news story. It doesn't seem to really tie in. It seems worlds away from that soft-skinned baby and the sages who come from the east to find him and worship him. It sounds actually, to be frank, really devastating. But if we understand the meaning of these two events, what sounds like devastation is actually two kinds of wonderful. Both of them are endings, the end of the temple and the end of the world. But in both of these endings, Jesus makes something obsolete with something that comes that is better. And his first coming The temple is made obsolete. On the cross, Jesus will take care of sins for all time and does away with the sacrificial system. And he becomes the temple, the meeting place between God and humanity. And at the second coming, this world will be replaced by new heavens and a new earth. Now, Advent is the time when we celebrate the central claim that's at the heart of Christianity. It's a game-changing truth, the truth of the incarnation, such a a kind of an eye-popping, gobsmacking truth that is claimed by our faith, that God, the ground of all being, squeezes his whole essence into a human form and becomes one of us. And it's important for us to actually see the incarnation not as a single event, but a sweeping action of several moments that has a resolution. God in Christ comes down into our human condition and sinks further still to death on the cross. And then he's whooshed up again in the resurrection. And then he ascends to the heavens where he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And that is where he is now. The last movement is yet to come. Now, the first readers of the Gospel of Mark uh, had already experienced, likely, the siege of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple. So like us, they're actually living between these two endings, the end of the temple and the end of the world, these two kinds of wonderful. So this week we start at the end, and it's a bit like focusing on the winning goal and celebration of a match. And then the rest of Advent, we go back and review the moment that the game really changed. That first movement of the incarnation when Jesus first comes as a baby. 
Why do we start at the end? Why is the end so important? It's because the goal of incarnation is God's dream for this world. His dream is this, to live in creation with the people he has made. It's right there throughout the Bible. It's there in Genesis. God walks in the garden with Adam at the cool of the evening. But tragically, this presence is lost as the first humans believe a lie that they're better off with God. A lie that we imbibe and repeat. A lie that has plunged the human condition and the world into a perpetual winter. And instead of life in God's presence, death, disease, corruption and violence have their way. But God does not want to stay away and the incarnation is his solution to be with us forever. So here in this passage, this cosmic collapse, collapse coincides with the coming of Christ, the Son of Man, this one who is formidable in power and comes in glory. And if we look at the passage, we'll notice that he's bringing something with him. If we look at the verse, it says that he's coming in the clouds. Now, Jesus repeats this statement that the Son of Man will come in the clouds or with the clouds or on the clouds. And the translators are very clear that the word is in or with or on the clouds. It's never through the clouds. Why is this important? It's important because in the, in the scriptures, the clouds are the symbol for the presence of God. the absolute and immediate presence of God. And we see this first actually in Exodus 14. When the people of Israel escape their Egyptian slavery, they are led out by God by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. But here's the thing, right? You want to actually be on the right side of this cloud. And it was interesting as I was looking at this passage at Exodus 14, I noticed one thing that I hadn't noticed before, and that is that as the Israelites move to the Red Sea uh, and get sort of essentially trapped between the sea and between the Egyptian army, the cloud that has been leading them moves around to the back, and for them that cloud is lightness, but for the Egyptian army that cloud is darkness. And when Jesus returns, that cloud of God's absolute and immediate presence will be for some a cloud of light and life, but for others it will be the collapse of the world as they know it. It will be demolition for some, but renovation for others. For those who cling to this world and its insistence of operating independently of God, it'll be a devastating moment. But for those who receive the offer that is given so generously in the incarnation of a forever life with God, this world gives way to a new heaven and a new earth. 
Now, I, uh, I know that that word that we read in the scripture of, of God choosing the elect troubles some people. So I want to just uh, give you some comfort. I think it, it sort of um, assaults our sense of God being fair, right? We, we want to feel that God's fair, that he's going to offer salvation to everybody. Uh, but this, this word sort of conjures up for us this idea that maybe God chooses some and he actively rejects others. So I want to offer two stories that might help us with this term. When my son was in high school, uh, the, the school offered, as many schools do, a trip to go overseas. And it was a trip to go to Japan. Now, there was a competition of places. They were limited. Uh, so uh, you had to apply in writing and basically tell, tell the school why you wanted to go. And there were two things that the school was looking for. They were looking for students who were actually invested in the cultural experience that that opportunity was would bring. So you had to show that you cared really about experiencing Japan. The other thing that they looked for was what would you bring to the cohort? What kind of person would you be when you showed up? Would you be good for the group? Would you be in investing in the people around you and turned out uh, to make it a good experience for those that were on the trip? I mean, who wouldn't want to come on a trip like that? You know, especially if the parents are paying, it's a chance to get out of school. But this was a way for the, for the organisers to kind of differentiate between those who really wanted to go and those who just probably wanted to go for the sake of the alternative, which is to stay home. Now, the kingdom of heaven is not like that in some ways. In many ways, it's not like that. One of the ways it's not like this is that there is no limit to the place in God's kingdom. Anyone who wants to be there will be there. And the wedding banquet is a very popular motif in the parables of Jesus. Often the kingdom is described as a great feast to which all are invited. But there's one story that I think is quite illuminating. It's the story of a wedding guest who does not come dressed in wedding clothes. He's sort of come for a bit of a look-see, he's happy to graze at the table, have a few snacks. But, you know, when it comes to the actual events taking place, his lack of appropriate attire shows that he's actually not really invested in the proceedings that are going on. He's, he's got a disdain, essentially, for what's happening. What's taking place is a wedding and the heart of the kingdom is a wedding celebration of a union between God and humanity. And so the question must be asked of many who claim that they would like to go to heaven. If they don't really want what is at the centre, which is a relationship with God, would they actually really even enjoy it if they got there? And if they're not committed to the central culture, which is being turned out to others in other-centred love, would they be good for that culture? Would they be good for the culture of heaven? So, beloved, I want to assure you, unlike the trip to Japan, God's kingdom is unlimited. There is plenty of seats at the table. No one who wants to be there will fail to be chosen. 
And those who are not chosen have really self-selected out because they're not invested in the central tenets of the kingdom, relationship with God and others. But here's the thing, and Jesus talks about this possibility of having two responses. We can either yearn for the kingdom, watch for it with eagerness, or we can yawn at it. Now, there are many, many Christians around the world that yearn for the king, for the coming of the king. Open Doors, which is an advocacy group that looks at the persecution of Christians around the world in 2022, had a survey that showed that over 360 million Christians are persecuted around the world. That's one in seven Christians around the world. Now, this is not the same as Christian persecution complex, which can happen in the West where people think that uh, their values are being oppressed uh, socially or by governments um, in the public square. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about real persecution where actual violence is the norm and state-sanctioned discrimination happens and people are incarcerated, incarcerated and executed. For such Christians, the second coming has always been and will continue to be a truth that they treasure, something that they yearn for, a hope that is coming. And in fact, it's interesting to note that the apocalyptic literature of scripture, these scenes of the end times, the eschatological uh, books like Daniel and Revelation, they're always written to a persecuted people. Daniel was written uh, to the Israelites who were in exile in Babylon. Revelation, which talks about the second coming and the end of all things, uh, was written to the persecuted church. And this passage here today, Mark, was also written for the early church that suffered. Now, you don't have to know the squeeze of persecution to know personal hardship. Many people suffer for many different reasons. Anyone suffering can take hope because the winter of this world will not be forever. Something better is coming. But if you're someone for whom most, if not all, of your needs are taken care of, and that's probably a lot of us in this room, if you're someone whose ambitions are matched with opportunity because we live in the kind of place that we do, then it may be tempting to think that this second coming is not really something that needs to occupy my time and attention. Indeed, it can be hard for us, can't it, to imagine that the world to come offers more. C.S. Lewis says of these higher pleasures in his remarkable sermon, The Weight of Glory, and I quote, If we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, 
fooling about with drink and sex and ambition, when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. No ambition that we have here. There is nothing that we can dream of doing that won't be eclipsed by what is coming. Daniel 12 verse 3 says, Those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens. Those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Philippians also says that we are made to shine like stars in the universe, starting now. And 2 Timothy, Paul writes that if we endure, we will reign with him. You know, we were made for agency and creativity in the next world, not just in this age. The next age is not going to be a field of playing harps in the sky. No, the garden is a garden city. A new Jerusalem is coming out of the heavens, uh, coming to earth. It's a place of industriousness, of culture making, of endless creativity. And guess what? You're going to be part of a super team, right? You're going to be part of a team that is led by the very genius of God himself. You will lack no good thing. And if you are tempted to yawn at this news of the second coming... I say to you, beware of spiritual growth. Because spiritual growth has a habit of doing two things, making you more content and also less content at the same time. You'll find yourself becoming more content with your lot in this life. But you'll find yourself becoming less content as well because you'll be increasingly moved by what is lacking for others. And we'll find ourselves saying more and more, come Lord Jesus. Now Jesus has exhorted his disciples to sit at the school of the fig tree in verse 28 and on. He says to learn to look for the springtime signs that show that summer is coming. And it's happening in this generation. This world will end, but my word, the whole body of my testimony, what I came to reveal about God and about the human condition, will not run out. It is rock solid. This world is locked in a winter because of the sinfulness of the human race. But Jesus brings with him with the clouds, the absolute and immediate presence of God. And with that comes an endless summer, a time of fecundity and life and vitality and flourishing for all. So how do we long for this endless summer? We participate in God's springtime. We join in and signpost the signs of the coming summer. And if you want to know what that looks like, just take a look at the life of Jesus and his ministry. It is this activity that Jesus has tasked us to continue. Because after all, he said, you will do even greater things. Truly, I tell you, whoever believes in the will 
in, sorry, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. You see, each of us has been shaped in a very particular way to participate in this kingdom goodness, to signpost the coming summer with our springtime activities. Let's find out what those things are and do it. This is how we yearn for his coming. So... Jesus is coming. It's one thing you can be very sure about. The other thing you can be very sure about is that no one can tell you when that's going to be. So if they try, don't listen. Anyone who truly wants to be on the right side of the cloud, the side of life and light, will be chosen. His presence is bringing with it an endless summer. Don't yawn at it. Yearn for it. Get ready. Stay alert. Because it could happen at any tick of the clock. <laughs>